Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Republican U.S. Senator Patrick Toomey discusses the unraveling consensus on free trade with Cato's Scott Linsicum and an exclusive conversation with Cato's Jeff Singer on the importance of harm reduction as a policy tool. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In our current bout of high inflation in the United States, not seen for four decades, uh, a lot of people who are under 40, well, probably under 50, really, uh, have not really seen this kind of inflation uh, in the wild. And it is uh, confusing and alarming. If you're a young economist, for example, it's probably amazing and cool, but also kind of sucks. And so to talk about uh, the questions relating to central banks, what they do, what they ought to be doing, uh, and how well they perform. I'm speaking with George Selgin, the Director Emeritus of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and Nicholas Anthony is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute who writes a lot about uh, these issues as well. So, George, I want to start with you. Um, Why do we have central banks? Oh, (laughs) this is stepping back a bit. (laughs) We have them. Because uh, the prevailing view is that uh, you need a centralized uh, agency that can control money supply, partly to contain or avoid inflation. This is the prevailing opinion. And also to maintain uh, stability in the financial sector. Now, I happen to be part of a small minority that doesn't uh, believe that uh, that's the whole story. It, a lot of it is historical. The earliest central banks were set up for purely fiscal purposes as devices to help their sponsoring governments financially, but they morphed into their modern form over the years. So purely financial, when did central banks come to be understood as the people who control the money supply and the people who lend money when no one else can or will? That really became an increasingly dominant perspective in the last half of the 19th century, partly because of crises that I would argue central banks or the proto-central banks were themselves uh, making more likely. But it was perceived that uh, these uh, formerly entirely private commercial institutions uh, because of their special standing and privileges and powers, had a public duty uh, to perform as well as their pursuit of profits. And uh, that developed into the, the doctrine that they were responsible, first of all, for last resort lending to other troubled financial institutions. But uh, as t- uh, over time, that broadened, especially after the abandonment of the gold standard into uh, a mandate that made them responsible for the overall behavior of national money supplies. And so that's that's where we've been for some decades now. That's where most of the world has been with regard to its central banks. All right. So in the American experience, which is where we're going to focus most of our attention for this discussion, how well has the Federal Reserve performed? I can remember even in the 90s, Nick, um, uh, people, libertarians showing me charts of the uh, cumulative inflation since the creation of the Federal Reserve 
and how the dollar itself has uh, weakened over that time. Uh, so how do you evaluate generally the performance of central banks, you know, in the United, well, in the United States example, since the creation of the Federal Reserve? Well, that's something that we have to look at through the the larger historical perspective, which George has supplied time and time again, where we see this this pretty stable performance that happened uh, beforehand, before the Fed and came came to be in 1913. And yes, there were crises that that happened beforehand. Yet, if the Fed was introduced to try to uh, solve this issue to get rid of any crises taking place, getting rid of any panics or runs, then we should see some sort of reduction taking place over time since then. And that's just not the case. Uh, George has uh, a pretty brilliant paper uh, from just just under 10 years ago that looked at the Fed's performance over the past 100 years. And when we look at that just right on paper, it just doesn't really show that it was the success story that it was made out to be. And it's not just looking at the the purchasing power. It's both in uh, its charge on, on looking at stability as well as unemployment. George, with respect to uh, all of the things that we would hope a central bank would foster, uh, you know, the in, inflation is one thing, but in terms of that stability, and encouraging dynamism in the economy. Uh, how has the U.S. Federal Reserve performed? Uh, well, Caleb, it's a. It's first of all important to uh, recognize that the American nineteenth-century pre-Fed system, nineteenth and early twentieth-century pre-Fed system, was a tip, was a was a lousy system. It, it had numerous crises, and uh, and those crises had to do with. Uh, shortcomings of the pre-Fed currency legislation in this country. Uh, we had more crises than other countries, particularly Canada, which makes for a good comparison, which also didn't have a central bank. So that's the background, right? An imperfect system. I want to uh, stress that because if I uh, uh, say that the Fed hasn't improved on, on that, and there are many respects in which it hasn't, I don't want people to think that I'm <laughs> celebrating that 19th century system as if it were itself uh, a good system. But in fact, in many respects, uh, the Federal Reserve has not improved things. Uh, business cycles have been uh, just as frequent. Before World War II, between the Fed's founding and, and then, of course, we had the very worst uh, cycles uh, and depression in history. Uh, but we also had more banking panics until the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was established in 1933. So things got quiet after that, not permanently. As Nick suggested, uh, the behavior, the price level hasn't necessarily it hasn't improved in many respects. Old statistics suggest that price the price level was a lot more volatile, but those statistics can be somewhat misleading. To some extent, it probably was more volatile in that we had uh, some pretty severe crises that made it so. But in others, it turns out that the price level has been had been a lot more predictable, which is different from volatility. In the long run behavior, the price level was quite predictable. So you had 100, 99-year corporate bonds and nobody does it, would dare do that now. And if they have, they're in trouble right now. Uh, and of course, as you were mentioning, the new situation 
particularly since we went off the gold standard, has been one of steady and sometimes rapid depreciation of the value of the dollar. Now, a steady depreciation can go on forever, of course, if it's modest. But uh, but uh, when we have bouts of very high inflation, as we are having now, then that gets extremely troublesome. I can remember, and it might have been Bill Niskanen uh, writing in the Cato Policy Report, it might have been 20 years ago, it might have been 15, 16 years ago, uh, saying, uh, why can't we get even the tiniest little bit of deflation? Give me a sense of, because I know that deflation is a big concern for a lot of uh, people who uh, fancy themselves monetary economists. Uh, you, tell me, what in, there's, is there good deflation and bad deflation the way I've heard it described? I guess this one's for me. I, I, uh, I, I wrote about this, uh, started writing about this very issue many years ago. I may even have written about it before uh, what Bill did, uh, but in any event, yes, there is such a thing as good deflation, and it had been experienced often enough uh, in the last, uh, sorry, in the 19th century. I'm a century off these days, but uh, 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 that that kind of deflation is distinguished by its being related to the uh, improvements in the overall productivity of an economy. So goods, real costs of production, unit costs are falling. If prices are only falling about uh, because of that, it needn't be a cause of any great misery, particularly if the regime is one that's been settled into gradually. You wouldn't want to try to get there in an instant. And um, and we had long experiences, as I said, uh, with falling prices that were roughly in accord with falling real costs, and and we know that uh, there wasn't any general depression going on for those long stretches of time. But that has uh, ceased to be the case now. And nowadays, uh, typically, central banks uh, create so much money that you never see falling prices, even when real costs are falling. But there is, I should hasten to say, there is also bad deflation. And bad deflation is when people are spending less than they used to. They hoard money or money supplies collapse or both. And then you get a drying up of demand for goods and services. And this is extremely harmful. Firms cannot recoup their costs. Uh, Debts become more... Uh, burdensome in real terms, while people's incomes are actually falling. So you can imagine what a squeeze that puts them in. All sorts of bad things happen when spending as a whole, or what economists call aggregate demand, is going down. That's bad deflation. That's uh, 1930s-style deflation. That's the most famous, but hardly the only episode. And we certainly want central banks to avoid that kind of deflation. So, uh, Nick, we've faced a current bout of high inflation. I should say we are currently facing a bout of high inflation uh, with not a clear end in sight. Uh, we can remember uh, just a few months ago uh, people debating the use of the terms transitory versus episodic versus something else, and the something else is universally scary. Um, how have how has the Federal Reserve responded, and how have politicians responded? 
Well, it's been interesting watching this kind of evolution of the language taking place because we did see that 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 early warning came up as just transitory, like you said, then it became episodic, then it became something else. And through and through, you had politicians putting weight on the, the Federal Reserve saying that this is something that they were more concerned about, something beyond being just uh, transitory in the sense that it was only fleeting. It was only going to be uh, a blip on the screen and nothing more than that. Yet, as far as how the Fed itself is responding, while it's dialed back the language, uh, we've had uh, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell say that uh, it's no longer in this transitory state. And even former Chair Janet Yellen now at the Treasury has said that she was wrong about her uh, assessment of the situation. We're still left a little bit in the dark with how the Fed is going to respond and what it needs to do as far as its current framework goes. Because just as we were getting into the pandemic, they changed into this flexible average inflation targeting regime, which allows them some flexibility with the kind of promise that they're going to make up for shortfalls. They're going to try to average it out in the end. And while that should be a constraint on the Federal Reserve, we have no idea what that average is supposed to look like in terms of how long it's supposed to be or what type of leeway they're really getting in it. So while they just hiked rates to try to combat the current inflation, we don't know what the end game plan is for this or what way we can really hold them to the letter of their own mission. And that's a very real problem. George, it seems at least troubling to me that the Federal Reserve is attempting to constrain itself. And that is, uh, that is to say that they're not being constrained by an outside overseer. And uh, as Nick sort of alluded to, you, of course, feel free to disagree, but it seems like uh, the public broadly is left with unclear expectations about the direction or the potential direction of Fed policy. Oh, there's no question about that, Caleb. Uh, it, it, there is a there's a fine line here. It's dangerous to have uh, the Congress, for example, or the executive dictate monetary policy. There's a reason why uh, we have uh, at least a nominally independent central bank because we don't want it to become a an uncontrollable <laughs> congressional piggy bank that creates money. Uh, in response to uh, con uh, politicians' desire to evade various spending constraints. But at the same time, of course, uh, we do want it to be confined. We want there to be some general rules that it must abide by. And that's why uh, the Federal Reserve does have a mandate that it is supposed to follow. However, it's a vague mandate. It, uh, it has several objectives that it's supposed to heed to, uh, including price stability, but also maximum employment and uh, moderate interest rates. And that, those, that combination of objectives leaves, for, uh, leaves a lot of wiggle room. And in fact, as you suggest, uh, the, the Fed has, in fact, uh, 
in elaborating its own rules or procedures, especially with its most recent uh, procedure of uh, so-called flexible average inflation targeting, it has, uh, instead of clarifying what it's up to, I'm afraid it's it's just muddied the waters that much more. As Nick was saying, uh, this still leaves a lot of possibilities. A lot of meanings can be attached to flexible average inflation targeting. And, uh, and I think that uh, it both allowed the Federal Reserve to fall behind the inflation curve, so to speak, and now is making it unclear to people just how rapidly it plans to correct things and exactly where how much correcting it plans to do. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the air right now. What is the uh, effect of uncertainty, uh, particularly with within a monetary regime, on the spending and investment decisions that uh, the private sector makes? Well, the most, uh, the most obvious concern that people have is with their, uh, the difficulty they have predicting what's going to happen on the one hand to their earnings, to how much income they make, their, their prospect of being employed or unemployed, of course. And then there's uncertainty with regard to the future course of interest rates. Uh, it's The Fed has made it clear that they're going to be going up some more. It's made some suggestions about how much, but we know that in the past it's uh, it's gotten it wrong. And we don't know exactly what its ultimate objectives are with regard to what uh, how, how rapidly it wants to bring in inflation down. And uh, so there's a lot of reason for people to be uncertain and to be confused, worried. Also, we don't have totally reliable theories, certainly, about how any given tightening or increase in interest rates is going to affect employment, right? Uh, some people have anticipated some pretty <laughs> hard uh consequences, some pretty painful consequences from the planned tightening. Others have said it's not going to be so bad, but people have to worry, of course, about the worst possible prospects and prepare for those. So uh, this is a difficult time to be living in. Uh, and it's also the case that uh, uh, it's become more difficult because the Fed didn't move quickly. If the Fed had uh, been more conscious of what inflation was doing and had not if fed officials hadn't managed to convince themselves that they were still on track when when in fact they'd fallen behind then the adjustments uh, would be more modest the possibilities the public would have been facing would have been less uh, severe or would have included less severe possible would not have included more severe possibilities and there'd be a lot more certainty and a lot less fear out there. So we understand that we're, for the time being, stuck with a Federal Reserve that uh, has not performed super well over the last 100 years or so, and uh, especially poorly, I would argue, since about, well, well before 2006 when the housing market peaked. Uh, let's talk about some alternatives. 
George, what do you, broadly speaking, advocate as either a replacement for a Federal Reserve or uh, a changes in uh, the Federal Reserve mandate or rules that govern the central bank of the United States of America? Well, I'm uh, not one of those who thinks that we should bulldoze the the Eccles building, which is the Federal Reserve's main building here in Washington, D.C., and wait and see what takes its place or what, what happens in its absence. Uh, uh, I don't like monetary chaos, and I think most people don't, and I do believe that would be the consequence of that approach, which some people seem to advocate, including some libertarians. I also think uh, that the dollar, uh, for all its problems, is something that we need to try to reform rather than get rid of, partly because getting rid of it uh, is fraught with problems, but also because uh, the dollar is so entrenched, not just here in the United States, but internationally. It is it is the basis for most international transactions. So a lot of people are depending on its being uh, uh, managed properly or reformed. Uh, uh, certainly, they don't want to see it uh, crack up. So for all of those reasons, and despite the fact that I am against any law that prevents people from using alternative currencies, whether they're private or foreign uh, cur uh, national currencies, I think we need to work on the Fed's mandate, uh, first of all, and then I think we have to work on making sure the Fed by abides by it. I mentioned before that the mandate we have now is a tripartite uh, mandate that's vague on account of that. Uh, I think the Fed should really have only one overarching mission and that's to stabilize the level of spending in the economy or its growth rate. And uh, that's what really matters for avoiding uh, both high inflation and deflation and bouts of unnecessary or avoidable unemployment. Just keep the flow of spending, the total dollars that get spent per year, say, uh, the value of uh, output stable over time. That would save, that kind of mandate would save a lot of uncertainty, would avoid a lot of uncertainty and a lot of perplexity because under it, for example, the Fed would let prices rise more rapidly at times, not a lot more, but more rapidly. For example, when you have uh, a COVID outbreak or war or a uh, uh, sanctions that reduce world output uh, or domestic output. And part of the problem recently has been confusion about, you know, whether the Fed intends to let prices rise to the extent that those factors have been involved or whether it means to keep them at 2% and despite them, or whether that's what it wanted to do. Under, under a stable spending mandate, some people call it NGDP targeting, but NGDP mandate, if you like, for nominal gross domestic product, the, the Fed would be explicitly charged only with keeping spending stable. And then if there were adverse supply shocks of the sort I just mentioned, prices would tend to go up a little more, but the Fed would ignore it. It's, it would see through it. I think that would be the biggest improvement. Then, though, you're not done when you have a clear, simple, unambiguous mandate for the Fed to uh, be bound by. 
you still have to have ways to make sure that the Fed uh, sticks to it. There has to be accountability when it fails. We have some mechanisms for that, but they're not very strong. Uh, and and I think uh, we have to think harder about how we can uh, hold the Fed's feet to the fire to make it stick to the sort of mandate I've described. Uh, and, and I'll just conclude by saying, of course, it's not a good idea to hold the Fed's feet to the fire if the mandate it's pursuing is not a good one. <laughs> then there are going to be times when you don't want it to stick to it. So getting the mandate right, getting it right uh, uh, so that in theory, at least, if the Fed were to abide by it perfectly, the economy would not suffer a lot. <laughs> That's step number one. Nick, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives is a big tent when it comes to uh, promoting different ideas about how money ought to function, be issued, uh, restricted, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, what are some of the other alternatives that are out there that have merit? Well, I think that that question segues really nicely out of George's point that the Fed ought to have one clear mission and we should get that mission right because there are a lot of alternatives out there. And it's important that we make sure the Fed does not expand into this space. Like George mentioned, it's it's important that people have access to alternative currencies, whether they be foreign currencies, cryptocurrencies, or something else entirely. We have a lot of new innovations in this space, and one of the worst things that could happen is for the Fed to step in as a competitor with others and try to uh, effectively stake its claim and in the process stamp the others out. For example, like George mentioned, one of the things that is important is that we take the chance, the opportunity to improve the dollar because so many people do depend on it. And one of the ways that we can do that is to embrace stable coins that are denominated in US dollars or backed by US dollars because they get dollars to places they've never been before. They improve access and they strengthen the dollar system. And yet if we had a, a Fed that expanded its mission to issuing, for example, a, a central bank digital currency, it's very unlikely that we would have a, a private sector that's able to compete with the Federal Reserve of the United States. That That's something that even if we put uh, some sort of uh, constraint on the Fed to what it can do, just by merit of entering the field, it will most likely immediately slant it in its own favor just because it's acting as both a regulator and a competitor. That's something that no one really has a hope of of standing up against. I mean, it's it's not an easy feat to say the least. And yet, if we can prevent that, there are so many alternatives in the space. Uh, like I said, it, it can be as mundane as foreign currencies or as cutting edge as the latest in crypto that offer the opportunity to insert something into the monetary space that hasn't been possible for decades. I just want to note to people before we close out today that uh, we've done a number of uh, podcasts on the Cato Daily Podcast about uh, some of the 
uh, adventurism, if you will, that the Federal Reserve is uh, currently pondering and what the uh, costs uh, of those of that adventurism might be. Uh, thank you, George Selgin, the Director Emeritus of the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and Nick Anthony, a policy analyst uh, at that very center. You can follow both of their work uh, at our website, cato.org. Free trade has long enjoyed public and bipartisan support in the United States, but that political consensus has begun to unravel. Now elected officials in both major parties increasingly subordinate a long-standing commitment to free trade to inward-looking ideological priorities, including concerns about national security and the people and communities left behind by our modern globalized world. At the Cato Institute, Scott Linsicum sat down with Republican U.S. Senator Patrick Toomey. Now, Senator, uh, as I noted in my introduction and, and uh, as you've noted in your remarks, you've been a staunch supporter of free trade throughout your career in Congress, even after trade skepticism invaded Congress and a certain openly protectionist Republican president carried your state in 2016. Now, our project on the updated case for free trade provides a laundry list of economic, geopolitical, and moral reasons to support free trade and oppose protectionism. You've provided, I think, a, a short outline of some of your views. But I wanted to dig into this a little bit more and see why you personally support free trade and uh, what you would think is maybe your, your, your biggest reason for doing Sure. Um, let me point out, in 2016, I carried Pennsylvania by a bigger margin than Trump did, just for the record. <laughs> um, he's he's uh, taking credit for my win. Skeptical about that. Um, look, so I think of it in two two categories, I, and I always have. Right, there is a, for me an important moral consideration. So it, it depends, I guess, on the your hierarchy of political values. For me, freedom is at the top, and personal freedom has to include the ability to engage in an exchange of goods and services, whether it's with your neighbor or whether it's with somebody who's not your neighbor and lives far away, what difference does that make? So it's so fundamental to human nature is the ability to own your own production. You know, you, you, you uh, have, uh, have that claim on, on your time if you're a free person. And so you have to have the ability to, to purchase and sell. It's an integral part of personal freedom, and that's always been important to me. But the other thing that I think is very important, too, is just as a practical matter, it, it is what enables a, a division of labor and specialization and all the efficiencies that come with that. And so you have more prosperity. And so freer trading societies are more prosperous societies. When, when the world, uh, you know, arguably, despite Trump's moving, uh, moving us backwards, he didn't move us that far. And, and so we're still in one of the freest trading environments in the last hundred years, and it's no coincidence that this has been the environment in which literally billions of people have been lifted out of poverty and the standard of living has improved at an accelerating pace. So I think it's both a very compelling moral and a very compelling practical case. That's, that's why I feel strongly about it. Yeah, it's great. It's great to hear the moral, uh, the moral argument. It's something that we wrote about in our paper, and it's something that I don't think free traders really uh, talk enough about. Um, and, quite frankly, the immorality of the alternative, of protectionism, of 
of taking someone's property and giving it to someone else uh, merely for uh, political consideration. Senator, in our, in our new project, um, we note that while overall public support for free trade actually remains pretty high, contrary to, I think, some of the conventional wisdom out there, um, and remains high even amidst the COVID-19 pandemic and all the supply chain crisis, chaos that, that John knows so well, um, the longstanding bipartisan political consensus has really unraveled in Washington. Trade really is a now four-letter word a couple blocks away. Um, when it comes to tariffs, industrial policy, Buy America mandates, and economic nationalism more generally, um, as you know, our current president sure sounds a lot like our previous president, albeit probably a little more polite about it. Um, and this persists even as we see, I think, almost daily new evidence of the benefits of globalization, say, for example, the, the Pfizer vaccine, um, and the problems that protectionism and industrial planning raise. Um, things like rapid tests that we didn't have enough earlier, or now for infant formula. You people know about 98% of all of our infant formula is, is uh, made here in the United States. But when you have a factory closure in the United States, well, what happens? You have a lot of empty shelves and frantic parents. Now, getting back to the politics, though, Senator, what, in your view, has driven the dramatic political shift over the last, say, decade or so? And I think, importantly for us today, how can free traders regain the bipartisan uh, I think a, a large part of it has been the acceleration of innovation and the impact that's had on the, our economy and on ordinary people's lives, right? Freedom is disruptive. And what we've had is this confluence of expanding trade at the same time an, ex, an acceleration of technology has changed our economy, right? Um, I... Traveling around Pennsylvania, you wouldn't believe how many times people have asked me, why don't we manufacture anything in America anymore? And my head is about to explode. Because this year we'll set an all-time record for the most manufactured value ever created in American history. But we do it with fewer workers. It's more automated. It's, it's done in different industries. And with you know we make different things. So it's not as visible. But, but this disruption that has certainly occurred and accelerated in recent decades has often, it's been blamed on trade. Now, trade's contributed to it, right? The, the trade has been part of it. I think that disruption is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, and it's often for understandable reasons. If, if you have been uh, doing a particular job for a long time and that's the only skill that you've ever been able to really... I get paid to, to, to engage in, if that goes away, that's a real problem. And um, I think automation has done that more than anything else probably, but trade has contributed. And so, so that, that's created a fertile ground for people who want to advance a protectionist message. And they've been able to do so. I, I think what we've got to do is remind people about the benefits focus on the importance of imports as well as exports, focus on the, uh, the fact, as it happens, that export-related jobs tend to pay more than non-export-related jobs, focus on the elevation of the standard of living. I mean, the fact is, the vast majority of us live better than our parents, and almost all of us live better than our grandparents. 
Even if we, if, if unlike me, if, if you actually come from a wealthy family, it's still the case because the things that we have and take for granted today that didn't exist when our grandparents uh, were growing up and, and, and were, um, were living. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. It's going to be, um, but we've, we've got to stay at it. Finally, on a, a you know, purely political level, I think it does take presidential leadership. It's, it's hard to... Uh, it's hard to substitute for an American president who's willing to stand up and make the case and pursue expanding trade. We found in um, previous work at Cato that uh, the American public's views on trade and protectionism shift pretty dramatically depending on what the president's saying. Because let's face it, we, a lot of us don't have trade in our daily lives. We don't really think about all the wonders that trade brings us, that John's member companies bring us. Um, and so if the president is, is a pro-trade, the polls go up. If the president is protectionist, the, the polls go down. So there's, I think you're, that's a, a huge point for sure. So there's been a lot of ink spilled about the economic and geopolitical effects of the last few years of U.S. tariff adventurism. It's a euphemism for sure. But much less discussed is why the president could impose all those tariffs in the first place. Basically, with no say by Congress. Some sternly worded letters, but that's about it, right? In particular, you know, I think few people seem to understand that Congress actually has constitutional authority over tariff policy. It's right there in Article I, Section 8. Um, and yet Congress has delegated massive swaths of that power to the president via all sorts of vague open-ended trade laws, like Section 232 or Section 301 and U.S. trade remedies laws, like our anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws. And these laws that were probably well-intended at the time they were implemented, but were used, and I'd, we'd say at Cato abused, by President Trump to impose tariffs on not just metals and Chinese imports, but also solar panels and washing machines. Just this week, we had more news about the tumult that solar panels tariffs, of course, are causing right now. Um, and President Trump used those powers to threaten other tariffs. Um, who can forget uh, we were going to put tariffs on cars for national security at one point. Um, now, we at Cato have written two papers on this, uh, one on Section 232 that was out a couple months ago, one on Section 301 reform, which will actually be out next week. Got to get that plug in. Um, and on why these laws need to be reformed. Um, and I know you, Senator, have championed various fixes as well. So why do you think that these decades old laws need to be changed, and for the fun part, if you could snap your fingers and implement only one reform magically, you're king for a moment, uh, what would it be? That would, that's a tough one. But um, So uh, the, uh, there's been a, a very disturbing trend for decades of Congress just abrogating its responsibility and turning over authority and responsibility that the Constitution assigns to Congress to the executive branch and this is a very bad development for our, for our society, I think, right? There's a reason that our founders made Article I all about Congress. And there's a reason that they specified the responsibilities that Congress had, and as you correctly point out, trade is among them. Now, I think you could make a case that there's certain circumstances where a delegation makes some sense. For instance, if you're going to negotiate a free trade agreement, it's probably hard for 535 members of Congress to negotiate the terms of a free trade agreement with some other country. Okay, so 
with very clearly defined parameters, you could delegate that negotiating authority to the president and retain for Congress the final decision as to whether to approve or to reject. TPA is meant to provide that kind of mechanism. But why not do that on 232 tariffs? If you really think that Toyotas are a threat to our national security, okay, make the case to the American people that, you, that we need to put tariffs on them. We, we need to tax American consumers when they choose to buy a Toyota. Make that case, and then let's have an up or down vote so that Congress will be accountable for it. That's what my 232 legislation does. It says if a, a president wants to invoke 232 on national security grounds, okay, he can make the case. But it doesn't happen until Congress decides that that's appropriate. That's what the Constitution calls for, if you ask me. This, this of course, is very controversial because all the protectionists, they like it the way it is. They like it because they figure all tariffs are good, right? The more, the merrier. And so why would you constrain the president's ability to slap tariffs for whatever illegitimate reason? That's a pretty poor <laughs> justification, but that's a big part of it. Patrick Toomey is a Republican U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. Amid opioid overdoses at historically high levels, what should we know about harm reduction? For this Cato Audio exclusive, I spoke with Cato Senior Fellow Dr. Jeff Singer about what doctors have known about forever harm reduction as a policy tool for a more harmonious society. In the world of medicine, in the world of crime, in some cases, probably the world of regulation, uh, we ought to understand what harm reduction is, especially in the medical field. What is harm reduction? Well, the term harm reduction actually came out of a movement in Liverpool, England in the early 1980s, uh, where a bunch of uh, doctors and social workers were trying to stop the spread of HIV in the intravenous drug using community there and started on their own handing out clean syringes and needles and and uh, that and, and helping uh, people who were using drugs to clean their equipment to prevent the spread of HIV. And in among the that group, uh, one of their one of the proponents coined the term harm reduction, but actually harm reduction is sort of most of what modern medical practice is in in, in a developed country, because it basically is a non-judgmental, uh, realistic approach to uh, dealing with the co harmful consequences of people's personal lifestyle decisions. So, for example, as a as a a physician, if I have a patient who's overweight, doesn't eat well, doesn't get exercise, and as a result has developed uh, early diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and as a doctor, I could see you know this person's heading towards either a heart attack or something, something bad, and I could get this person's problem out of the way if we if I could just get uh, you know get that person to agree to a diet and exercise regimen. We don't even need to use any medications, but realistically, this. Even though the the my patient may understand that and wish he or she could do it, they just don't feel capable of it or they like what they do. So when I prescribe a statin drug, for example, to get the cholesterol level down and maybe something like metformin to control the blood sugar and an anti-hypertensive medication for their blood pressure, in a way, I'm practicing harm reduction. I'm I'm saying 
Look, if I can't get you to change what you're doing, at least let me give you some things you could take to reduce the harm that some of these decisions you're making can be doing to yourself. So, so it's a concept that's really not alien to healthcare practitioners. Um, and in, we see this, for example, uh, with alcohol use. So, for example, uh, people uh, who uh, want to drink heavily at a party and they're planning to. So they either arrange to have a designated driver because they don't want to be the, they know they're not going to be, they're going to be impaired. Or maybe they decide to take a taxi or an Uber to and from the, uh, the, the party. Well, that's harm reduction. They're reducing the likelihood that something bad will happen. Even uh, when it comes to people who want to quit smoking because, you know, tobacco smoke contains a lot of carcinogens and other agents that could damage the, you know, the, your, your circulatory system. So, Switching to an e-cigarette where you're not getting any of those toxins delivered to you, uh, but you're still able to, some people enjoy the pleasure of inhaling and exhaling uh, a vapor or some, you know, uh, like that and with a flavor. So that's a form of harm reduction. You're, you're, you're allowing the person to experience what they enjoy experiencing, reducing the harm. So both right and left here miss this. or ignore uh, harm reduction uh, in, in a lot of ways. On the left, uh, broadly, the leadership of the anti-smoking movement has been left of center, broadly, and uh, they have pushed into making it harder to get your the flavors you want for e-cigarettes, for example, which in, in my particular case, I'll provide a testimonial, was instrumental in helping me quit smoking cigarettes uh, now almost a decade ago. I haven't had a cigarette since August 2013. Uh, so that was helpful for me. And they, they sort of ignore that or the flavors that, you know, the flavors that you you might associate with with tobacco, you want to get away from them. And on the right, uh, there is a dramatic uh, criticism of groups that want to hand out clean needles to people who we know are going to continue to use harmful drugs. So what what should these people understand about harm reduction? It, it's almost as if they're denying a reality in order to appear uh, tough on some material. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like both both polls actually get the idea, they get the concept, but they have their own biases that you know, get in the way and don't allow them to to apply that consistently. <laughs> so that, for example, like you mentioned, uh, you'll see a lot of defenders of e-cigarettes, or now there's a, a move to ban menthol cigarettes, which um, uh, the, the evidence shows that menthol cigarettes, uh, for some reason, people who consume menthol cigarettes consume fewer cigarettes than people who consume non-menthol cigarettes. And uh, there's also evidence that they have a lower incidence of lung cancer. Perhaps it's related to the lower consumption rate. But there, uh, because they, there's this concern about teens picking up smoking, even though teen smoking is at an all-time low, despite menthol cigarettes, there's this movement afoot to get rid of menthol cigarettes. But on uh, more people on the right say, well, why are you doing this? You're actually getting rid of something that is not as harmful, perhaps, and it's an adult decision. So yeah, you, everybody's got their favorite drug to defend and their favorite drug to oppose. Um, but the, the idea behind it is to 
take your personal judgments and moralization out of the picture and be realistic. The reality is that people are going to uh, engage in certain lifestyles that may or may not be in their best interest long term, but you have no control over these decisions because these are their decisions. And um, it, even if you did think you had control, what you're going to do is not going to stop it. So but if you're concerned about the outcomes, and I can understand that's nice to be concerned about it, then something you could do is take steps to make what they're doing less dangerous than it is. And in most cases, the reason it's dangerous is because of government interventions that make it dangerous. So for example, in the case of, of uh, drug use, the reason we're seeing so many people overdose from using uh, drugs non-medically is because they're, they're obtaining them in the black market where they have no way of knowing whether, if, for example, if they think they're buying heroin or if they think they're even buying a, a, a prescription, a stolen prescription pain pill, it could be actually fentanyl. It could be, or they use a lot of illicit fentanyl powder to make counterfeit prescription pain pills. The reason they can't determine that is because it's in a black market. So, you, whereas when you have something that's legal, such as alcohol, which was once prohibited, you know, when you go to a, an alcohol st store to buy liquor, you you don't have that issue. It's whatever if it says forty five percent alcohol on the label. It's forty five percent alcohol. It doesn't doesn't even cross your mind that it might be laced with fentanyl or arsenic or have more alcohol than it says. So so many of the dangers associated with some of these, uh, let's say you know politically uh, incorrect uh, choice lifestyle choices, are largely the result of the fact that they've been made illegal and and they're driven underground where it's more dangerous. And uh, yet, in some states. Uh... Your state of Arizona uh, has a, a few examples of this. The state of Pennsylvania is uh, moving ahead with some uh, or trying to move ahead, we should say, with some programs to engage with uh, people who are either addicted or dependent upon uh, certain drugs. Uh, what is the state of, I guess, our public learning about the benefits of adopting harm reduction policies and uh, what does the future hold? Well, I, I, policymakers and lawmakers on both the state and federal level are finally starting to come around because most of the developed world, with Canada to our north, Australia, and basically all of the European Union, and even other countries in Asia, for, for 30 years or more have embraced harm reduction methods. So you take a situation like Germany, which has had safe consumption sites and needle exchange programs and medication-assisted treatment available since since the late 80s. Uh, they have the second highest opioid prescription rate in the world, the second only to the United States, and their prescribing pattern has followed closely the U.S. prescribing pattern so that it really jumped up in the early 2000s and then it peaked like it did in the U.S. at 2012. Yet they have one of the lowest and consistently lowest overdose rates in the world, and we have the highest. Uh, of the developed world. Why is that? Well, because they've been embracing harm reduction. So a lot of lawmakers and, and policymakers are finally starting to, to to recognize that. So for example, in the previous administration, Jerome Adams, who was President Trump's uh, Surgeon General, he was going around the country urging states to uh, uh, adopt uh, what's now called syringe services programs. They used to simplistically be called needle exchange programs. And that's the way a lot of people understand it. But actually, they do more than that. They also hand out 
the overdose drug, uh, the antidote naloxone. They hand out testing equipment to test to make sure that what you purchased on a black market is what it says it is and doesn't have fentanyl in it and things like that. They they do offer testing for HIV and hepatitis and refer you if they're positive. So they're really syringe services programs. So even in the previous administration, they were embracing that. And, and Rahul Gupta, the current drug czar in the Biden administration, likewise is encouraging it. So we're starting to see a lot of policymakers, maybe it's because they realize that Things are only getting worse. It's time. It's time to listen to uh, what people in other countries have been doing successfully for decades. They're finally starting to come around because a lot of it was there's this bias saying I don't want to be perceived as endorsing or enabling what I consider to be bad behavior, and a lot of it is moralizing as well. But harm reduction advocates don't. They're not necessarily endorsing or encouraging this behavior. They're just taking their personal beliefs out of it because. Their main concern is they don't want to see people die and they don't want to see people spread disease. And and that's all they're concerned about. Their personal decisions about what they think people should be doing is not a part of the picture. There is a fundamental issue here, which is when you have laws on the books and you have a recent paper about uh, drug paraphernalia laws and how they prevent public spirited uh, citizens from putting together programs to help uh, addicts uh, get access to clean needles and potentially other services as well, that uh, to the extent that we prohibit harm reduction, which is a lot of what uh, our drug laws do, a lot of what our laws governing alcohol and any number of other, other things do, we're preventing people from engaging with one another as equals and trying to uh, come to a better solution together. We're prohibiting that. That's a perfect way of putting it, I mean, and both on the federal and state level. So on the state level, every state except Alaska has drug paraphernalia laws on their books that prohibit the possession, sale, or distribution of a whole host of of devices used to either consume, make, or test drugs. And uh, they stand in the way of groups that want to set up these syringe services programs and in the states where they are permitted, the, the state legislature has to modify their drug paraphernalia laws to in some way allow these organizations to function. On the federal level, we have a law that was passed in the mid-1980s. It's uh, 21 U.S. Code Section 856 called the Crack House Statute. We ought to really rename it as the Stop Overdose Prevention Site Statute because uh, it's that statute that is preventing cities and states who want to set up what's called a safe consumption site, where you actually bring people inside off of the street out of the view of your children. And um, they inject after being given uh, equipment to test what they, what it is they're getting ready to inject into their bodies. And there are people standing close by with the overdose antidote naloxone. Uh, these have been around, again, since the late 80s and uh, Canada's got 40 of them, uh, Australia, most of Europe. Uh, and we can't put them, they're federally prohibited in this country because of that statute that makes it illegal to knowingly allow the use of an illicit substance on your premises. It was originally designed to stop the use of crack, but the law, the way it's written, it also prevents the use of anything. So, uh, we need to get rid of that law, just like the states need to get rid of their drug paraphernalia laws, because they're they're very analogous. And you have this weird disconnect where you have, you know, the the both administrations, this one and the previous one, encouraging 
states to have clean needle exchange programs, yet they're prohibiting states from having similar programs, but just brought indoors, which you would think, you know, citizens would rather not see this, you know, on the street. They, one of the original motivations for starting these safe consumption sites back, you know, in Switzerland and other countries 35 years ago or so, the motivation was that a lot of, a lot of the residents didn't want to see this happening on their street when they're walking down the street with their family. So the the main motivation was just to bring it indoors. And of course, a whole lot of other benefits uh, came about when that, when that happened. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The Cato Institute's pocket constitution containing both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States helps citizens, young and old, gain a better understanding and appreciation of their own individual rights and the principles of government set forth in America's founding documents. With over 7 million copies in print, it has been held up by senators at press conferences and by representatives during floor debate, found in federal judiciary chambers across the country, and it makes a great gift for friends and family alike. Buy yours today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.